I would invite you, if you have a Bible with you or on your phone, to look to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We are now down to the last two messages of a series called Going Places, as we have traveled with the people of God, the Hebrew people, the Israelites, from their exit from Egypt into the Sinai or to the mountain. That's really been the going places that we've followed. And we are now down to the last two messages, and actually this is the last place we will go as we want to hear from God, as what he had to share with them. But just to review quickly the journey that we've been on, we followed them out of Egypt, and the first stop was in the bitter well of Marah. And we saw a miracle. God took bitter water in a well and turned it sweet so that they could drink and be taken care of. We then moved with them further into the the wilderness and there was now a need of food, a need of provision. And God provided manna or what is it so that they could eat and they could be cared for. We then continued a few weeks ago where they stopped at another well or excuse me, another place that has been now named as Masa and Merhabah, where there was no water and God split open a rock and made water burst forth so that they could drink. And they named that place Masa and Merhabah, the place of testing and the place of quarreling. Last Sunday, if you were able to join us, we were finally at Mount Sinai, finally at the edge of the camp. And Exodus 19, in my opinion, is one of the most powerfully descriptive passages of the Bible to illuminate God's strength and authority, God's power and magnificent might, where there's thunder and clouds and fire and smoke, and God descends on the mountain and it truly shakes and trembles at the presence of God. And God invited the people to come and be ready for what he was going to share, what he was going to communicate to them. And Moses went up on the mountain and the people are around the mountain. And now we arrive in Exodus chapter 20, where God is going to give the beginning of his holy commands. Exodus chapter 20 contains the 10 what? Commandments. Exodus chapter 20 is one of two places in the Bible that describe God's Ten Commandments. Now, when we say Ten Commandments, it's almost universally known by two things. Two things. Some folks, when they hear the phrase Ten Commandments, they immediately think about the thou shalt nots or the do's and don'ts of God. Even people who have no relationship with God, who do not know Jesus is Lord and Savior, they know there are these do's and don'ts in the Bible someplace that tell us not to kill, not to steal, not to lie, not to cheat. They just imagine and reflect that there are these don'ts and do's that God wants us to follow. That's one way people know this, pretty much universally. But the other way people know this is by the movie, The Ten Commandments. Charlton Heston, you know, Moses. 
uh, with that beautiful beard and that big luscious hair. I, I'm really hoping to be Moses from the movie this year for Halloween because he's just looking, you know, brown and tan and powerful. How many of you have seen the movie, The Ten Commandments, at one point in your life? Okay, it's not as common now, but for the better part of 30 years, the major networks, one of them, they alternated, would play The Ten Commandments around the time of Easter every year. And they had to do it in two parts because the movie is nearly four hours long. And can you imagine going to a movie theater and sitting through a movie today for four hours But the creator of the movie, Cecil B. DeMille, uh, created this film in 1956. That's how old it is, 1956. And at its time, when it was made, it was the most expensive movie ever to be created at $120 million. I mean, now today, that's nothing. But then, in 1956, $120 million was an enormous budget. And he made it with big scenery and big sets. And there was a lot of costumes. And it really felt like something very, very spectacular. Now, a little lesser known fact was that Cecil B. DeMille actually made a version in 1923. Some 30 years before, that was a silent movie of the Ten Commandments. It's hard to imagine the Ten Commandments as a silent film, but he was so impressed with this part of the Bible that he made literally two movies in two different decades, one silent and one in color, to help capture the moment. A few years back, actually, folks in Los Angeles stumbled upon one of the Sphinx heads from the 1923 film that they just found in the dirt because apparently in those days when you got done with a silent movie, you just buried everything instead of throwing it away. But he made this movie with a purpose and I'm trying to capture an interview that he did. It's been many years ago, but this is some of why he made the movie. He said this, I wanted to capture the imagination of all peoples, Jews, Christians, Muslims, and those with no previous knowledge of God, that they would feel the impact of God's presence. This morning, we want to show just a brief clip from that movie. And the Valley Creek editing team has done a little editing, by the way, to break it to the point and to the time. But this is when God gives the commands and it's an artistic representation. Don't feel like it's perfectly to the biblical text, but it will give us a hint of what it could have been like to receive God's commands. Let's take a look at the movie, The Ten Commandments. From the burning bush, O Lord, you charged me to bring the people to this holy mountain to behold your glory and receive your law. What have I left undone? I am. I am the Lord thy God. Thou shalt have no other gods before me.
In his expression. Well, the version there is a artistic version, but let's hear it from the scripture. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. Exodus chapter 20, starting in verse 1. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. And you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will hold, not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother. For that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And you shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. That's the commands. That's Exodus chapter 20. Now, if you still have your Bibles out, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 5. The second place the Ten Commandments are mentioned would be Deuteronomy chapter 5. They're mentioned, of course, in Exodus 20, but the other location is Deuteronomy 5. And there it gives a bit more of the context around the way in which God gave these commands. Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 22 says this. 
These words the Lord spoke to all your assembly at the mountain out of the midst of the fire, the cloud and the thick darkness, and with a loud voice. And he added no more. And he wrote them on two tablets of stone and gave them to me. So Moses is reporting here in Deuteronomy 5 The assembly had been gathered. The fire is there. The mountain is on in trembling in thick darkness. And this voice, this loud voice is not only for Moses to hear, but the whole assembly to hear. And that God does writing. He does some scribing two tablets of stone that he gives to Moses that then ultimately Moses brings before the people. Look down in verse 32 and 33 of Deuteronomy 5. Now Moses is going to speak about the commands. He says, Now you shall be careful, therefore, to do as the Lord your God has commanded you. You shall not turn aside to the right hand or to the left. Don't drift, don't wander, don't get off this path. But you shall walk in all the way that the Lord your God has commanded you, that you may live and that it may go well with you. And that you may live long in the land that you shall possess. You know, the commands come with the promise. The commands are part of God's covenant. The commands come with hope and blessing and a gift of prosperity. The land that is mentioned about a possession that will come is part of God's promise to these people. Certainly these Commands have a sense of do this and don't do that, but they are far more than the do's and don'ts of religious people. They're part of God's covenant with his people. And this morning, with the time that remains, I just want to do two things as we look at God's holy commands. I first want to take just a few moments to ask what are they or what do they say at a closer line, closer look. And then I want to ask the question, do they have any application for the Christian? For those of us on this side of the resurrection, this side of the New Testament. First, let's do some things. And I got a little sheet of paper in front of you. So they're in front of the seats right in front of you. There's a little card I want you to pull out that looks like two little tablets. And you most certainly can grab a pen there as well. Because I think this will help us as we go through this little task together. There's two tablets, a stone tablet on each side. And I want you to start on the side that starts with number one and has going places at the bottom. And as we go through these, I want you just to jot down what the command is. These will come quickly. Let's first start with the first four, which are the vertical commands. The first four, one, two, three, and four, are vertical commands in that they deal with our relationship to God himself. They are the upward commands, if you will. Now, number one is have no other gods. You heard in verse two and three. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. No other gods. Now, this makes perfect sense to the people of Israel, the Hebrew people, because in that time and in that day, they are surrounded by people 
who have lots of other gods. The Egyptians, where they had been for the last 450 years, were surrounded by temples to all kinds of gods. God of the sun, God of death, God of the water, the Nile. They had numerous gods that they bowed down and worshiped to. It was very common that the Egyptians would change who they liked in their God pantheon. They would swap them out by whoever the king was. That was a very common thing. And so the Hebrew people had been around for many years, a culture that had a pantheon of gods. And later when they arrive in the promised land, the land of Canaan, the land of the Canaanites and Jebusites and Hivites and Perizzites and all the ites. They're going to be surrounded by peoples who worship lots of gods. The gods of Baal, the gods of Asherah. It's going to be numerous. There's going to be pagan Canaanite gods all around them. And so God is establishing from the very beginning, you shall have no other gods before me. And if you keep going in the period of the Babylonians, when the children of Israel are exiled, they're around all the Babylonian gods. Later on, they'll be around the Assyrian gods and the Persian gods. Even in the time of Jesus, the children of Israel, the Jewish people are around a slew of Greek and Roman gods. Zeus and Jupiter and Mars and Aphrodite and you name them, they had temples literally everywhere to the numerous gods of the day. And God here, rule command number one, is his people are to have no other gods. It's not God plus you fill in the blank. It's not God and you fill in the blank. You shall have no other gods before me. Even today with religions that are still a part of this world, the Hindus have thousands of gods. The Buddhas, Buddhists have hundreds of gods. The Shintos of Japan have temples to name multiple gods. And you can even go further than those. Number one, no other gods. Number two is like it and has an expression of it. No idols. No gods before me and no idols. Now this makes sense. Verse four, you shall not make for yourself a carved image of anything in heaven, on earth or under the earth. Why would that be important in that day? Because a very common practice among all these peoples around them is to make carved statues and carved images, whether of stone or rock or wood. And some of them would be in great temples. Some would be in every home, figurines, little statues that they would worship and pray to. They would have idols everywhere. The landscape would be dotted with idolatry. And God is telling his people, don't make any idols yourself. Now, the crazy thing is while all of this is happening, guess what the people of God are making at the bottom of the mountain? They're making an idol called the golden calf. They're not even getting command number two while commands are being given. See, it's something God knows about the nature of heart. We would rather worship something seen and tangible than something unseen. And actually, part of the problem that we still have is it's easier to go to a temple with the stone carving or a stone monument made after some image and bow down to it instead of worshiping the God who is unseen. Jesus is referred to as the God, the icon of the invisible God. 
that he himself was part of God's revelation of himself so that God could be made known to man, so that we could worship God fully. It's certainly the case that there are still idols today. Anytime we mix something human-made, man-made, with the worship of God, we are stepping into a place of idolatry. Well, let's combine three and four, God's name and God's day. God's name and God's day. Do not take the name of the Lord in vain and remember his day. Remember the Sabbath, the day of rest and keep it holy. God's name and God's day, three and four. For God's name has a holy presence. Moses in Exodus chapter three asked the Lord, what is your name? I don't know how to go to your people and defend them without knowing your name. And God gives Moses a name. I am who I am. Jehovah Yahweh, I am who I am. And God's name is holy. Friends, this is more than not using God's name in a curse word or stubbing your toe in the middle of the night and letting out, oh, God. You know, I even cringe, this is just me, with the emoji OMG. I don't think anyone is purposefully trying to break one of God's commands, but I personally in my spirit think you don't toy around with God's name. You speak God's name as an authority, as a worship and reverence and respect and awe and recognizing that it's a holy part of God's covenant to us, that God is expressing himself in his name to us to build relationship with his people. You don't mess with God's name and you certainly want to remember God's day. He worked six days in the creation and rested on the seventh and has established the seventh day as a day of rest and remembrance and worship. One, two, three, and four, the vertical. Now, on your sheet of paper, I want you to write a little dotted line between four and five. One, two, three, and four are the vertical commands that deal with our relationship with God, our worship, our reverence, our covenant with Him. Five through ten, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, deal on the horizontal with one another. They're the horizontal commands. Let's do these quickly. Number five, the transition between the vertical and the horizontal. Number five, honor your father and mother. There is a command in the big 10, the commandments of God to honor our parents. And and I recognize, I recognize not every person's parents are honorable. Some of you have had wonderful relationships with your parents, but there are lots who did not. There are lots that possibly have even been hurt and harmed by their parents. So how do you honor them as best as you can, as most unto God as you can? We honor those that gave us life, that gave us breath. Number five is the honoring of parents. Six, seven, eight, nine, and ten are what we historically know as the thou shalt nots because each of those begin with a plain disclaimer of what not to do. They're not a pointing to do, but of what not to do. And it begins with thou shalt not kill or thou shalt not 
murder. That every single life is to be cherished and valued. Every single life has been made in the image of God. Every ethnicity, every language, every tribe, every tongue has been made in the image of God. And we are to be very thoughtful about cherishing life. Now, I can have a side discussion with you about war and about defending ourselves and even about defending our families. I can have a different conversation with you about capital punishment and really as it even goes to the issue of abortion on demand. But at the core, we as God's people need to respect that which God created. And God created every person alive in his image with a soul that is eternal. And as much as it is possible, we need to honor that and not destroy that which God has created. We need to honor life. We are to honor our marriages, honor our marital vows. Do not commit adultery. This means don't be with someone who is not in your marriage or in your covenant vows. Don't take another spouse as your own. This is both before you are married and while you are married. Don't take that which does not belong in the covenant marriage union. Don't be physically with someone other than your spouse. Do not steal, do not steal, which is actually in many ways connected with do not take somebody else's spouse into your bed. That's stealing something that's not yours, but don't steal. And I got to tell a little story and I've told it many times. The first real broken sinful act I can remember doing is stealing. Now, you might collectively go, oh, you stole? Yeah, I was about six, it's about six. And my dad took me to a little gas station down by our house in Hancock County, Kentucky. And while he was talking to the shop owner, I was in the candy aisle and I saw some Reese cups, those little bitty ones. Can I get an amen for a Reese cup? You know, you know. Still to this day, they are my absolute favorite candy. And even as a little six-year-old, seven-year-old, I didn't know what I was doing, but I grabbed two handfuls of Reese cups and I shoved them in my pocket and I stole. And when we got home, I ran to my bedroom to hide because real sinners hide after they've done sinful things. And I ate every one of them. Just shoved them in as fast as I could. A few moments later, my dad came in and, and I'm not a good sinner. I'm not tactically correct because I left all the candy wrappers right there on the floor. And he asked me, where did you get this candy? And I said what every kid says, I don't know. Still probably had chocolate on my mouth. And my dad did something so, so wise as a good dad does. He packed me back up in the truck and we went back to the store where I had stolen. And he made me confess to the shop owner what I had done. I can remember to the day, I'm sure they were grinning and laughing, kind of having two guys watching this little kid you know, plead his case before him, how terribly sinful and a thief that he was. But what they also came up with is that I had to pay back the stolen candy. And so for the next few minutes, they made me push a push mop and sweep the floor of the store. And, and I probably, you know, I'm only, I'm not even, I'm only 5'8 now. So I was probably like two feet tall at that point. <laughs> I was a little guy and I can imagine that the broom was probably bigger than I was. And I was pushing that little broom through that little gas station store, cleaning the floors. 
And I can just sense my dad and that shop owner were probably having a good laugh. But I was a thief. I had stolen. And I was getting what was rightly my punishment. You know, we don't steal. We don't take what is not ours. Number nine and ten are unique in that they mention something different. A neighbor is mentioned. Nine, don't bear false testimony against your neighbor. Don't bear false witness against your neighbor. Don't lie on someone. And certainly, number 10, do not covet or do not desire, do not long for your neighbor's stuff, your neighbor's things, their wife, their possessions, or anything that the neighbor holds. Don't steal, don't bear false witness, and certainly don't covet that which isn't yours. So if you think you have the dotted line below one through four, which are the vertical commands, five, six, seven, eight, and nine and 10 are the horizontal commands. They deal with our relationships with one another, our relationships with other people. Number one, two, three, and four deal with our relationship with God. Five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10 deal with our relationships with one another. Now watch this with me, watch this. Do you find it interesting in that these 10 of the 10 that God gives his people, there is more instruction and guidance on how we relate to one another than how we relate to God. You might ask why, I ask why. Why is five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten about the horizontal, but only one, two, three, and four about the vertical? I believe it's because God knows at the human heart, there is selfishness, there is sin, and there is brokenness. And in some ways, if we truly attempt to honor one, two, three, and four, it will have an impact on how we do five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. And certainly all of five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten would improve and get better if we truly had no other gods before him, that we recognize God's authority in our life. But the brokenness of our human hearts and the sinfulness that each of us deal with cause us to be at odds with one another, with our parents, with our spouses, with our neighbors, with our friends, with those around us. But God had a design. You are not to walk to the right or to the left. For in these commands you will live and you will have prosperity. Well, let me answer the second part of this message. Do they apply to us? Do they apply to us? You see the 10 now written out before you. You have your 10 listed on the little sheet. Do they apply to the Christian? Do they apply to the person who is on this side of the cross, this side of the resurrection? And let me just paint this for you for a moment. These 10 are not all the commands God gives. If you continue reading in the book of Exodus and Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, these 10 are just the tip of the iceberg, which will result in 613 laws or commands. The full breadth of the Old Testament law is not in the 10, but it's in the 613 that govern everything from food and clothing and relationships and sacrifice and festivals. And they are still in many ways practiced by Jewish people Still to this day, if you meet an Orthodox Jew, a Hasidic Jew, they will have certain clothes and they will have certain colors of in their hair and they will do certain things because they're trying to keep all 613 of the Old Testament laws. But what does it apply for us? I'm not Jewish. You're not Jewish. We're not Hebrews. 
we are Christian. We are followers of Jesus. Well, let me ask Jesus to answer this question. Do they apply to us? Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Jesus answers a question about the laws, about all of them this way. He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. In Jesus, there is a fulfillment. There is a completion. There is a consummation of the law. Not that Jesus is going to go beyond the 613, but that Jesus is going to fulfill all 613 laws. The scripture teaches us very clearly that every one of us have broken at least one, if not a hundred or more of God's laws. Romans 3, 20, or 3 verse 10 says, there is no one righteous, not a single one. There's none of us who are perfect. But Jesus has come to live a life, a human life, 30 plus years on this earth, and he did it in complete fulfillment of the law. The scripture says in Hebrews 4.15 that even though Jesus was tempted in every way, he was without sin. Jesus kept the law. And therefore, when Jesus goes to the cross to be killed and crucified, he's doing it to make a perfect sacrifice for all of us lawbreakers, for all of us who would have never kept the law. His sinless life crucified so that our sinful life could be paid for, could be made right. Scripture says in 2 Corinthians that he who knew no sin became sin so that we might stand right before God. There was an exchange. His good, right, holy life taken and crucified for our sinful, broken life then saved. The question then is, what would Jesus say about the law or the commands? Well, someone asked him this very thing in Matthew chapter 22. Asking him about the commands. The scripture says in Matthew 22 verse 35, And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest command in the law? Of the 613, of the great 10, what's the best What's the number one? And Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments, just these two, depend all the law and the prophets. I invite you to turn your sheet over. The ten summarized in the two. First, the vertical, you should love the Lord. The vertical, you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. When we love the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we will have no other gods before him. We will not take his name in vain. We will not create an image and bow down to it. We will not worship an idol. We will remember his day and remember his name, and he alone will be our God. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength, it then sets into motion that you are keeping the greatest command, that you are keeping him first. And in a place of priority in your life. It's a vertical relationship when you love him with all your heart, mind, soul, 
and strength. And then it's the love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. It's the horizontal. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor. The horizontal relationship is how we treat one another. Galatians 5.14 says this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Romans 13.8, owe no one anything except to love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. James 2.8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. How do we horizontally relate to one another? How do we love our neighbor? Friends, we love our neighbor by honoring our parents as unto the Lord. We honor our parents. How do we love our neighbor? We love our neighbor for we keep life sacred and cherished. We do not kill. We do not murder. How do we love our neighbor? Well, we do not take for ourselves someone else's spouse into our bed. We do not break our marital vows. We do not join with anyone physically outside of the marriage union to create something of lust and desire and attraction that leads to unfaithfulness. No, how do we love our neighbor? We do not lie. We do not bear false testimony. We don't steal what's theirs. I mean, I was thinking this week, how many court cases would be radically different if actually in the court scenario, someone actually did what they said they were going to do to tell the truth, nothing but the truth, so help them God. But what do folks do when they get in the courtroom? They win the case. They lie at any level in order to be victorious at the end. Friends, that's not loving our neighbor. Telling the truth loves our neighbor, being honest, being a person of our word, that's what loves our neighbor. Loving our neighbor doesn't desire what they have or what they have possessed or what they have on their property or in their house or in their marriage. No, we don't desire that which isn't ours. We love our neighbor by honoring those relationships. And in doing so, love the Lord and love our neighbor. We complete all of the commands that the law and prophets hang upon. Friends, the 10 might be summarized in the two. Love the Lord, vertical. Love your neighbor, horizontal. On these two depend the law and the prophets. Can I have the praise band join me? My question for us very simply is today, are you keeping God's commands? Have you walked to the right or to the left? Have you strayed from the way of loving the Lord and loving your neighbor? All of us have broken God's commands at some point and praise be to Jesus that he gave his life for us as a sacrifice. But we certainly want to confess and repent when we break God's commands and go our own way. Can I have you bow your heads for just a moment? As we enter into a time of response, just ask you to ask God to show places in your life where the commands are not being kept. Whether the 10 or the two, where there's been a place in your life where you've drifted. And ask God's spirit to convict your heart, leading you to repent and to trust so that you can obey him better. 
and walk in his ways better. So God, we come to you now. We come to you with a humility and a reverence, knowing that these commands speak still today to our lives and our thoughts, our interactions with one another. I pray, God, that we would be love, that we love you with all our hearts and that we love others as much as we love ourselves, that you would set that into motion deeply into each one of us so that we can uphold what you would call the good way, the right way to live. God, if there be any in this morning who need to make a decision or need to come to you in repentance, I pray that your spirit would move freely now so that we could leave right, leave forgiven, leave pure before you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.